night, I invite you to open and turn with me in them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we come to read verses 13 through 18, though most of our sermon will be taken up with those final two verses of the section, verses 17 and 18. So we come to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Please hear the word of our God tonight. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As far the reading of the Lord's word, may he bless it to us. Please join me again in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it corrects. We thank you that it challenges, that it convicts. But we also thank you that it greatly comforts us. And so as we turn our faith and our attention once again to the prospect of death, to the death of those around us that we dearly love, and more particularly to our own deaths, how we pray that these words would console us and comfort us, even through the valley of the shadow of death, that we would be reminded of this glorious heaven that we hold, not simply a pie in the sky, but a definitive act of your redemption and of your grace and of your assured promises. We pray, O Lord, that you would enlighten our eyes to see marvelous things from your word tonight. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As Paul comes here to the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, undoubtedly the words that we have just read are meant to be of great comfort and consolation to all of the Lord's people in the face and in the prospect of death itself. There have been some who have noted that of these verses that there is nothing of their likeness in all of the human language ever written from the beginning of the world until now that ooze with such comfort that comes with such great consolation to those who mourn and grieve at the very prospect and the very thought of death. It is probably for this reason that this section of Scripture is often read And it is often referred to in the midst of Christian funeral services where we temper our grieving and our mourning with the hope that radiates from this passage. Now undoubtedly as we come and we confront these consoling and these comforting words that Paul writes here, we ought to note that there is undoubtedly room to mourn the reality of death. You think of Christ himself that there in John 11 when he went to go and raise Lazarus from the dead, That even though he knew Lazarus was soon going to be raised from the grave, that when he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, that we read there that Christ himself wept in the very presence of death. 
The very reality that Lazarus was about to be raised from the dead in a great display of the power and the glory of God, that despite how comforting and consoling that may have been, that Christ himself, simply beholding the reality of death and what death does to his people, that Christ himself saw that death was something to be grieved over and something to mourn. And we see that even in verse 13, as Paul segues into this section, that he doesn't diminish the need for grief, that he doesn't say, well, suck it up, buttercup. There's no reason why when we face the reality of death, whether our own death or the death of one that we have loved, that we ought not to shed tears, that there ought not to be sadness, that there ought not to be grief. But that what Paul does in this section is he tempers our grief with the hope of everlasting life. I have very little patience for those amongst the Calvinist tradition who subconsciously think that we must remain stoic in the face of death, or those who think that it's simply easy to glib over the difficulty and the grief of death by deferring to the sovereignty of God and his providential plan. Undoubtedly, the Lord is sovereign, and undoubtedly, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but in no way Does faith simply take itself to the sovereignty of God and console itself and say there is no room for mourning, for lamenting, for grieving at the very fact and the prospect of death itself? No, if we look on the pages of Scripture, what we undoubtedly see is that death is a forceful enemy, that death is a violent enemy, that death is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that must be destroyed. And that this enemy of all of us, of our bodies, and indeed even as as, uh, hopes against our souls, is that this last enemy only comes to cause grief, only comes to cause sadness, only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so there is something that is to be grieved at the prospect of death, and yet what we observe here is that Paul would have us to temper our grief. Paul would say that even in the midst of our tears, in the midst of our sorrows, that yet we still understand that we have a hope. And as Paul firmly establishes the hope here in this section, you see that he first goes to the very resurrection of Christ himself. That it is because Christ has lived, because Christ has died, even more because Christ has been raised from the dead, that we know that because of his resurrection as the first fruits of those who have gone before, that we have the sure and the steadfast promise that all who die in Christ will be brought with him. That Christ's resurrection is the down payment or the guarantee, if you will, of the fact that all those who have faith in him will ultimately triumph over this enemy of death as well. And so Paul comes here and he lays down for us the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. And you note here in these verses that Paul isn't simply speaking of this pie-in-the-sky type of theology. That in Paul's day, as well as in our days, that there were those who, uh, we could say that they were materialists, that they denied that which was transcendent, that they denied the spiritual, that there were people in Paul's day, as well as our day, that run around saying that the resurrection, that this is foolish, that this is simply a blind hope, that this is something that we don't ultimately have assurance for, and that when people face the prospect of death, that often the answer of our day and age is to remain relatively agnostic. And yet as Paul comes here to offer these gospel comforts to us, he notes here that these aren't of even his own words, but that these words come from the Lord himself, that Christ has spoken these very things to us for our assurance, for our consolation, 
and for our comfort. And as Paul moves from the resurrection that we attain to at the coming of Christ in the final judgment, you see that secondly, he comforts us as he casts our faith towards this glorious doctrine of heaven once again. And we see particularly in verses 17 and 18 how he speaks to heaven as he declares there by the word that he's received from the Lord, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, as we look to the second great consolation that Paul gives us, not simply the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of those who are in Christ, but as Paul turns our faith to heaven, we wish to note here the consoling power of this doctrine as we consider at least three things that Paul draws out. The first, in verses 17 and 18, Paul speaks of the consolation that we have and that heaven will bring forth a glorious reunion. And not only will it bring a glorious reunion, but secondly, that Paul consoles us with the doctrine of heaven by speaking to the eternal duration of heaven itself, before finally in these verses turning to the commendation that we ought to give to one another of the consolations that heaven brings. And so we wish to look at these three points tonight, the reunion, the duration, and the commendation. We see first in verse 17 that as Paul casts our faith upon the glories and the reality of heaven, that Paul first says here, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now here you can observe in the language and the words that Paul uses that he speaks here of a twofold reunion that we will have in the coming of heaven. That heaven will bring us so many comforts and consolations because it will bring in its wake a twofold reunion. And you see the first reunion that Paul specifies here in verse 17 is that there is a reunion between all those who have died in Christ. Paul here in the beginning of verse 17 says, Then we who are alive, who are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Now, granted, as, as Paul comes here and as he's offering the consolations of heaven, chiefly in Paul's mind is that he is dealing with those who are still alive at the coming of Christ and those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ prior to the return of Christ. And this is what accounts for the we and the them language that Paul uses there in verse 17 when he says, then we who are alive, that we will be caught up together with them. That the we are those who are still living at the second return of Christ, and the them that Paul identifies there are those who have gone to be with the Lord prior to his return. And what Paul sees here is that when Jesus returns in great glory, when he comes to bring his bride into his bedchamber, when he comes having prepared these heavenly mansions for us, that whether we are on the one hand alive at the coming of Christ or whether we have gone and we have died and we have been buried six feet under the ground, that ultimately whether we're alive or whether we're dead, that this will make no difference at all because the glory of heaven is that it will reunite all of the Lord's people together. It is to say that what Paul reveals here is that whether you're alive or whether you're dead, that one of the great consolations of heaven 
is that in heaven, God will bring all of his people, that he will shepherd all of his sheep, that he shall bring us all into the pasture lands of heaven itself. Undoubtedly, as Paul is chiefly dealing here with those who are alive at the return of Christ and those who have uh, have died prior to Christ's return, we can, as it were, take a little bit of a step back here to see that the overarching idea that Paul is conveying here and the reality and the consolation of heaven is that what Paul proclaims of heaven is that heaven will be one glorious reunion with one another. What you note in the words of Paul as he speaks of we and of them and of all of us being caught up together and being with the Lord forever, on the one hand what we observe is that in heaven that there will be no one among the Lord's people who are missing. That when we come into the eternal glorious habitation that is laid up for us, that not one of Christ's people will be missing. You think of Christ there in John chapter 6 as he proclaimed his own efficacy to save and the effectual nature of his salvation, where he proclaimed to his disciples and to the crowds that were gathering around him that he had come not to do his own will, but that he had come to do his Father's will and that this was the Father's will, that he should lose none of all those whom the Father had given him. And what we see in heaven is that this promise is fulfilled, that Christ is seen to be the one who has lost none but raises them up at the last day, that there is none of the Lord's people who shall not be included in the glorious reunion of heaven itself. And what a glorious comfort this is to us when we think about it. What a certainty of hope we can have as we reason thus that if we are one of the Lord's, then undoubtedly heaven is for us and we too shall reign in glory even with Christ. And so we note here that Paul, as he speaks to the reunion that we will have with one another, that first he notes that there will be none who are left behind, that we will never get to heaven, we will never have to search the rolls, and we will never have to wonder what happened to such and such a person who had a sincere and a genuine love for the Lord and had a true faith. Are they in heaven? Did they not make heaven as heaven simply for the super spiritual? Is it only for those who attained to some degree of sanctification in the course of this life? Is it only for those who are the real stalwart defenders of Christianity, but Paul says no. Paul says anyone who has faith in Christ, anyone who is accounted as the Lord's people, anybody who has embraced Jesus by faith shall be brought into the glorious context of union with Christ in heaven for all of eternity. We see as well that these words convey that not only will a single one not be lost, but that we will be with those who we have fellowshiped with. That we will be with those who in the midst of this life that we have conversed with and those that we have lived alongside of and those that we have loved in the midst of this world. And while this certainly isn't the chief comfort or consolation of heaven, brothers and sisters, we ought not to rob ourselves of the immeasurable grace that this is. That we have all, in different degrees and different measures, experienced the loss of those that we have loved. That there are some parents who have lost their children in the ripe and the tender age of youthfulness. And thinking, if I could only see this child of mine again, if I could only spend five or ten more minutes with this child, and yet as surely as Christ has been raised from the dead and has heaven in store for us, there is a glorious reunion that is awaiting parents and children. And some of you have experienced the great travesty and the darkness that it is, 
to bury your spouses, either your husband or your wife, and those that you have loved and those that you have lived beside for many years, those who spurred you on towards more of Christ and that you established a home and raised a family with and spent so many years walking hand in hand only to have that relationship severed by death itself. To go and to stand there in the presence of the grave as the body is lowered into the ground and covered with the dirt of the ground. And yet Paul holds forth this great consolation that in heaven husbands and wives shall be reunited. That here brothers and sisters who walked and enjoyed earthly comforts and enjoyments in the course of this life and a common faith will at long last be reunified there in heaven. That friends and acquaintances, that all of the Lord's people will be caught up together to dwell in the presence of Christ for all of eternity in heaven itself. Indeed, far beyond those that we're simply familiar with. Paul reveals here that this reunion isn't only going to be with loved ones, with spouses, with children, with grandchildren, with friends and acquaintances, but there in heaven we shall be reunified even with the totality of the body of Christ, even with brothers and sisters that we know not by name nor by face in this day and age, but that we shall in eternity dwell with them in the presence of Christ forever. You see, what Paul notes here as he speaks of this reunion, we can speak about it without triggering it, that in some sense it is going to be a huge family reunion. And yet it's going to be a family reunion where there's no baggage, where there's no difficulties, where there's no grievances or resentment that we may have harbored in the course of our lives towards one another. But that here in heaven it shall be a reunion where we all receive our glorious bodies and our perfected wills and dwell in unbroken fellowship and unbroken communion and joy with one another. Indeed, Paul shows us that one of the great consolations of heaven itself is that we will be reunited with all of Christ's people. As great as a comfort and a consolation as that reunion is, we see that it's not the only reunion that Paul speaks of in verse 17, that he doesn't only speak to the reunion that we will have with those who have died in Christ before us, but that he also speaks of a reunion that we will have with Christ himself. And he notes here that we who are alive and we who are left, that we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to what? But to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. These words that Paul uses here in the middle of verse 17, it's a very graphic description of what our faith anticipates when Christ comes again in great glory to bring us home to be with him where he is. First, you see here that Paul tells us that it is going to be a being caught up in, that it is going to be a being caught up in the clouds. Sometimes as covenantal people and as reformed uh, theologians that we kind of recoil at this idea of being caught up. After all, if you know dispensational theology, you know that they popularized in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries this doctrine of the rapture, where Christ himself comes and all of a sudden people mysteriously disappear. And while they speak of the rapture more in terms of some secret rapture that occurs at the coming of Christ and occurs prior to the seven years of tribulation, that sometimes we can respond to that and say, well, there is no room for a biblical view of the rapture. Undoubtedly, if we define it according to the dispensationals, it's an unbiblical doctrine, but if we use the language that Paul himself uses here, there is place for a type of rapture that does come. 
That here what Paul envisions is that when Christ returns in glory, when he comes to reunite those who are yet living with those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, when Christ comes to reunite his people to himself, that what we have is the suddenness by which this is going to happen. That this is going to happen in a public way, that this is going to happen in a glorious way, that this is going to happen, as Paul speaks elsewhere, in the twinkling of an eye. And Paul tells us that here, that we are going to be caught up. You think of back to Christ's high priestly prayer that we've preached on on numerous occasions in John chapter 17, verse 24, where Christ pours out his heart and his will to his Father and says, I pray that all those whom you have given me, that they would be with me where I am to behold my glory, for you have loved me even from the foundations of the world. And that what Christ reveals in that prayer is that he longs to be with his people, that he longs for his people to be with him, that he longs for us to behold him in the glory that he has as the only mediator between God and man. And that this is why it is that believers die, that this is why we go home, because Christ has prayed for it. And as we've noted before with John 17, 24, that Christ's prayer there reveals that for as much as we long to be with those that we love who have died before us, that Christ has a greater longing and yearning to be with his people. And what Paul envisions here is that the moment that Christ returns, a moment not too soon and a moment not too late, but that he will waste no time in bringing his people and catching us up into the sky to be with him where he is for all of eternity. And so we see the suddenness by which this reunion is going to happen, that Christ, if we can put it in this way, an excited and an eager Savior who longs to be in the presence and longs to dwell in the midst of his people. And we see not only the suddenness by which this reunion is going to happen, but we also read the type of salutation that we will receive in that day when we will be caught up for the purpose of meeting with him there in the air. Well, this meeting with is a term of familiarity. It's a term that means that we have an appointment that must be kept, not only on Christ's part, but on our part as well. It's a receiving, it is a welcoming, it is a gathering in with great joy and with great delight and with great happiness. And here Paul also tells us that we will be caught up with him in the air and that we will be with the Lord forever. Well, the language that Paul uses here with be with the Lord, it's not as apparent in our English translations. And yet the Greek knows at least two different words to convey the preposition with. And one of the more common ones is not being used here, but rather when Paul notes that we will be together with them and that we will be with the Lord, that he uses the word with, it's the Greek word soon, if that means anything to any of you, that it is one that speaks of intimacy, that it is one that speaks of solidarity, that it is one that speaks of a coherence between Christ and his people. And so Paul draws out the great sublimity of this whole scene, of what it's going to be like when Christ returns in glory and we are reunited with him in the air. Now I imagine, at least for me and perhaps for you as well, that this can be a very difficult thing to imagine. There is one sense, isn't there, in which we are already with the Lord in this day and age. You think of Christ himself in John 15 when he wrote that if anyone doesn't abide with me, then I don't abide with them, but that we are to remain with the Lord. That through the salvation that God has offered by his grace, that we always stand in the presence of Christ. 
We think of the way in which Christ speaks of being with his people as we carry out the glorious great commission that he established with his church as he declared, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the ages. There is something marvelous and mysterious and glorious about the preaching of the word where we through faith and by the power of the Spirit quite literally behold Christ crucified before our eyes. There is a way in which Christ himself is with us as we submit ourselves to the waters of baptism, as we hold the bread or the wine in our hands. And so what does Paul mean here that only when Christ returns will we then be with the Lord forever? Isn't there a sense in which we are already with Christ? Undoubtedly, it's difficult to imagine. And there is some element of continuity here, but there's also an element of greater advancement. What Paul beholds here in the consolation that he speaks that heaven brings is that no longer will we be with Christ if we can speak in this way as to being with his shadow, but that we shall be with his very substance. That the way in which we are with Christ now is by the indwelling of the Spirit, that it is by faith, that it is through gazing through that mirror, but dimly as we behold him and his shadow in the sacraments and in the preaching of the word. But what Paul holds forth here is that day when we shall see him no longer according to his shadow, but see him as he is. And so we see this first consolation that Paul gives of heaven. A great comfort that heaven itself will bring a great reunion. One where we are reunited with those that we have loved. And secondly, the greater reunion of our hearts and our minds and our souls with Christ whom we dearly love. But you see as well that Paul goes on to speak to a second consolation. Not simply the reunion that heaven itself will bring, but he also speaks to the duration of heaven. And he notes this, that as Christ returns and as those who are alive and those who have died are now raised and they're caught up into the sky together with Christ to meet him in the air, that Paul notes so simply and yet so profoundly, and so we will always be with the Lord. So we will always be with the Lord. As we contemplate this duration, the first thing that's worth drawing your attention to So we can't escape the words of Paul, of the certainty by which he speaks. And he notes here that when we go to be with the Lord, that it's not a hope, that it's not crossing our fingers, that it's not simply some who will be with the Lord, that it isn't obscured by some uncertainty or lack of assurance, but that Paul says we will, that we will always be with the Lord. That undoubtedly this is an assured promise that we have from Christ himself. And my guess is that many of you probably know something about the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. The doctrine that says that when we die or when Christ returns, that there is a state, an absolute certainty. A number of weeks ago, we turned our attention to the rewards in heaven. We note, according to the New Testament and the biblical teaching, that there are degrees of reward in heaven. God crowns his grace with more grace and that to those who have been faithful with a little, that they'll be entrusted with a lot, that we see this over and over again in the course of the scriptures. That There are varying degrees of rewards, but when it comes to our presence with Christ in the midst of heaven, 
Paul wouldn't have us be thinking in terms of degrees. Paul wouldn't have us be thinking what might be true for one isn't necessarily true for another one who is in Christ, but that Paul sees that this is a universal gift and a universal grace that belongs to all of the Lord's people, that everyone who has faith in Jesus, that they will always be with the Lord. Paul uses this particular word here that we will always that we will always be with the Lord. And I know as well as you do that though the grammar is easy to define, that experientially this is something that defies explanation. It can be incredibly difficult for us to wrap our minds around the duration of heaven as Paul tells us that we will always be with the Lord. Sometimes when we contemplate this truth, And all we can really bring ourselves to do is to affirm the language that the Bible itself uses. We can speak of eternal life, that we can speak of being forever with God, or that we can speak of the everlasting joy that awaits those who are in Christ. But sometimes all we can do when we contemplate the duration of heaven is simply to affirm it in the language that the Bible itself uses. But you note that within the particular context here, that Paul isn't simply wanting us to affirm. That Paul isn't simply giving us doctrinal teaching to tickle our minds and to cause us to walk away with some grammatical conception of what it is. But that Paul, as he commends to us here this glorious comfort of heaven that we will always be with the Lord, that Paul wants us not simply to affirm this, but he wants us to be affected by these words that he wants us to immerse ourselves in them, that he wants to stir up our longings and our desires to see that the delight of our souls in the very prospect of heaven is that heaven is a reality that shall always, forever, everlastingly exist. But how difficult it is to feel the weight of this. Because the way in which we often gauge things is through the fleetingness of time that we experience in the here and the now. That often what stirs our desires is knowing that things come to an end. And that often we mark the passage of our lives not only by the coming of things, but by the going of things. And though there is time in heaven, what Paul notes here is that it is a never-ending supply of time. That here in the reunion that we will have with others in Christ in heaven, that we have this duration, that heaven is a place of everlasting bliss. That we will always be with the Lord. You just meditate briefly on that word always. And you know as well as I do that when Paul says that we will always be with Christ, that we're not talking months And we're not talking years. And we're not measuring this even by lifetimes, but we are measuring it by an infinite duration of never-ending time. That the comfort and the consolation that Paul holds out here is the never-ending duration of heaven itself, that we are talking about billions upon trillions upon quadrillions of years. And the magnitude of what he says here is absolutely astounding. 
It's astounding when you think that as creatures we are finite, that as we think of our lives in this world and of all the pleasures and the delights that we have, that they are finite, that they are transient, that they are temporal. And yet Paul says of the glories and of the joys and of the bliss of heaven that it is a never-ending, that it is forever, that we will always be with the Lord. How do we even begin to wrap our minds around the magnitude of what Paul declares Declares here for our consolation. I don't typically enjoy illustrations, and yet I'm still a sucker for that illustration of the seagull and the sand on the beaches. And you've probably heard this illustration before trying to capture the depth and the astoundingness of what Paul speaks of here. And if you imagine a little seagull that flies all the way to the east coast and he picks up one little pebble of sand from the beach on the east coast, and he flies all the way across the United States to the west coast, and he drops that little pebble of sand there, and he flies all the way back to the east coast, and he picks up a second grain of sand and flies it all the way back to the west coast, and he does this over and over again, that by the time he has taken all of the sand from the eastern shoreline of the United States and flown it to the western side of the United States, that eternity has only just begun. What Paul says here is that heaven is forever. That it is forever. And how can we not gawk with some amount of anticipation at the duration of heaven? How can we not read these words that we will always be with the Lord and not feel like one who is lost in the vast ocean of God's grace. To think that the life that we live now, we live for 80, maybe the course of 90 years. The most of us in the midst, even of our Christian pilgrimage and those who have attained to higher degrees of sanctification than others in the midst of this life still bemoan and still lament that there seems to be so much sin that's still within me. That when we think of these short and these few days that we have been given and how often we spoil them and how often we waste our time when we think about how small our affections are for the triune God, for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we think of the magnitude of our own sins and the misery that we deserve, what is this that God in His immeasurable grace should so reward us with an eternity with Himself? with never-ending days, everlasting world without end. Now, undoubtedly, this very truth has caused and does cause some apprehension even for Christ's people. That just the thought of eternity and even of the never-ending reality of heaven can in some regards be a fearful thing. I remember when I was six years old and it first dawned on me what it meant that whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, that you live forever. I remember being six and contemplating this and thinking I was born in 1983 and what that means is that from 1983 till eternity future, the Michael Borg shall never cease to exist. And sometimes when we as finite and limited human beings begin to contemplate these things, we don't necessarily feel the joy that we ought to, but we feel some degree 
of apprehension, some degree of fear. What is it going to be like to be always with the Lord? What is it going to be like that the duration of heaven is going to be counted in the trillions upon trillions of generations that shall exist time without end? And yet we do well to remember that Paul isn't speaking here to cause apprehension. Paul isn't trying to terrify believers. Paul isn't even in a word trying to sober us up as it were. But what Paul is intending to do here and he is doing is he is comforting us. That he is coming with the fullness of God's grace and the prospect of the death of others or of our own deaths. And he is consoling us and he is comforting us and he is wiping away the tears. And he is trying to limit the pain and the grief and the suffering and the affliction that we endure in the presence of death. That Paul is comforting us. And he comes with this most eloquent comfort that he says we shall always be with the Lord. Well, how is this a comfort? How is this to console us in the presence and in the reality of death and the things that lead to death and the valley of the shadow of death? How are these words to comfort us? I think that hinges on this phrase that we will always be with the Lord. And that the infinitude of time that Paul speaks of here is an infinitude of time where we will be in the presence of the infinite God. And that Paul knows that there is no greater comfort or consolation for the afflicted or the grieving soul than God himself. And that what the infinitude of heaven shall bring is an infinite time to dwell upon the infinite perfections and blessings and graces of God himself. And that it is a comfort to say that we will always be with the Lord. Because to always be with the Lord means that we shall forever be in the midst of life. That we shall forever be in the midst of light. That we shall forever be clothed in the garments of love. That we shall forever dwell with immeasurable peace. That we shall always Rest that we shall have never-ending joy and bliss and delight. You take the greatest experience that you can have in this world and simply try to imagine what it would be like if this experience had no ending, nothing to taint it, nothing to dull it, Nothing to diminish it, nothing to steal from it, no experience that would ever be outdated. And what a blissful thought it is of always and forever enjoying greater and greater depths of the infinite God and all of his beauty and all of his perfections and all of his grace and all of his promises and all that he is towards us and we to him. And so Paul shows us this consolation of heaven. That we will always, that we will always, always, always be with the Lord. World without end. And then we see thirdly and briefly this evening, the third consolation as Paul commends to us here in verse 18 these words. Therefore, encourage one another 
with these words. Now what we see of Paul in verse 17 is that he has one eye on heaven. And that he has one eye on the glories of heaven and all that it shall bring and the fulfillment of the promises that await us. And yet what we behold in verse 18 is that Paul brings us back to the present reality. That he brings us back to the life that we live and to the death that surrounds us and to the affliction and to the difficulties where death seems to always steal and destroy and triumph. I think it's fair to say that we often feel this very poignantly in the course of our lives. Which of us did not feel the devastation of death when we received the news two weeks ago that a dear brother lost his 14-year-old daughter? How many of us weren't taken, even with grief, and not knowing these, this man and his wife and this child as, as perhaps we wished we had? How many of us have not experienced the reality of death as, as we have seen those that we loved who are even aged as, as their body decays and deteriorates and they too come to the point of death? How many of us have not felt very acutely the physical beginnings and miseries of death as it's working in our physical bodies to bring us to the state of death and to the grave and how unbearable this can be and how difficult it can be? And on the one hand, we hold death out in all of his experiences and the miseries. And yet, on the other hand, we have this glorious hope of heaven and the reunion that it shall be with those that we have loved and with Christ and shall be an endless duration. But what good is all of this heaven when we find ourselves caught and imprisoned, as it were, in a life of endless misery and death and difficulties and decaying? And so what Paul does here in verse 18 as he brings the doctrine and the consolations and the comfort of heaven down into our very real experience. And he commends to us here, as those who are yet living in the midst of a world consigned to death, that therefore we are to encourage one another with these words. We are to encourage one another with these words. Well, how do we fulfill this commendation that Paul gives to us here? Certainly and undoubtedly there is a place in the moment of death where we remind one another and we remind ourselves of what has been said here. That when we mourn and grieve with those who are mourning and grieving the loss of loved ones, there are fewer passages in all the scripture that speak to the needed comfort and consolations than this one does. As we've already noted how often these verses are quoted at funerals, how often we offer them in our supplications when people are experiencing death, how often we speak these words of life that we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but we grieve as those who have the greatest hope in the world, how often this idea covers the songs that we sing as we encourage one another. That we are to encourage one another as we speak to one another and remind each other of these truths, even in the midst and the moment of death. But might I also encourage you tonight that we are to encourage one another with these words, not simply in the moment of death. And not simply as a reaction to that news that we receive that so-and-so that we have loved dearly has gone to be with the Lord. But that we commend ourselves to one another and encourage each other with these words. 
when we both live and when we die in light of this hope ourselves. It is to say that we encourage one another when we live as those whose ultimate hope rests not in this world. When we are not consoled and content and comforted by the things in this world. But when we live in such a way that we encourage one another to be reminded and to know that our greatest contentment and our greatest comfort, that our greatest ambition in life is to attain to the resurrection of the dead and to life everlasting that shall come when Christ returns in great glory. We are called to live this encouragement. We are called to be those who live for heaven itself and not for earth's accolades or for the things of this world and the temporal and the transient things that are bound to perish and to fade and to burn, but that we live for the glory and for the renown of heaven itself. We encourage one another in this way. What a discouraging thing it is to be a pilgrim on the way to the celestial city and to behold brothers and sisters who are turning to the wayside. To behold brothers and sisters who are growing weary in the life of faith. To behold brothers and sisters who would have us sell our hope of heaven for the joys and the trinkets and the treasures of this world. And so we ought to be those who live always with this hope and this aim and this ambition of the joy of knowing that one day for all of eternity we will be with the Lord. But I would secondly also commend this to you that we encourage one another. Not only when we live this way, but particularly when we die this way. There are few things that the modern man hates and despises as much as the prospect of death. And that we are conditioned and nurtured in the course of our own lives to fight the reality of death at every corner. That as Americans and probably as Canadians as well, We love the thought of ignoring death, of trying to cheat death, of trying to skirt death, of neglecting the reality of our own deaths. You think to the very simple way in which this is illustrated that it used to be that churches were built amidst what but cemeteries. And now in our modern culture, we love to hide cemeteries behind fences and bush lines so that we don't have to think about death, we don't have to contemplate death, we don't have to fear death. If you look, even as we age, that men and women will trade their souls for a few more years of life in their corrupted flesh that is given over to mortality, that we fight and that we rage against the very concept and the very thought of death with everything that is within us. And this isn't to say that we ought not to love life, and this isn't to say that we can't make use of the modern technologies and the marvels in order to elongate life, but we must bear in mind, particularly as Christians, that how we die is absolutely important. You think of Jesus as he was telling Peter there shortly before he ascended into heaven, as John writes in in John chapter 21, Jesus tells Peter, there's coming a day when you're going to be led astray, when you're going to be led by those to go somewhere where you don't want to go. And John tells us that Jesus was telling Peter by what kind of death, not only would he die, but by what kind of death he would glorify God. 
And brothers and sisters, if we are to be those who confront the reality of death with the hope that we have, not only of the resurrection of the body, but the hope of heaven itself, then we must understand that like Peter, so we too have an opportunity by our death to glorify God to remind one another, to encourage one another, to live as those who glorify God in the midst of our own prospect of death itself. And that this is one of the great ways that we encourage our brothers and sisters. When our body waxes and wanes, when our strength dries up, when our tongue feels like it's sticking to the roof of our mouth like a potsherd, that it is then that we remind and encourage one another that we may die, but we die in the hope of heaven itself. And so Paul commends to us here that we encourage one another in the midst of this present darkness and the death that surrounds us with these words that we hope not only for the resurrection of the dead, but that we hope for life everlasting. And so brothers and sisters, may we be those who live, yes, as those who must die, but may we also die as those who must live forever with the Lord. Amen. Please join me in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, how kind and merciful you are to us, that you, O Christ, should come for us and for our salvation. And how we thank you that this salvation, though begun in this life, that it shall be carried forth unto all of eternity. We thank you for the hope and for the consolation that heaven itself brings. And so may you cause our hearts, our minds, and our faith to meditate deeply upon these words and to find an opportunity not only to encourage ourselves in the midst of meditating upon our own deaths, but to encourage one another with these most precious promises. We pray that as we collect our offering now, that you would be glorified by the giving of your people. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.